Welcome to the Chorus Deep and Wide Podcast. This is episode six with Jarvis Williams. Over the past couple of years, the state of Missouri, along with my city, Columbia, Missouri, have really been at the fault line of the racial tremors that have almost ripped our nation apart. First, we had what happened in Ferguson with Michael Brown and Darren Wilson. But second, we had the campus protest and football boycott here at Mizzou. We spent a lot of time in our church talking about how the gospel is meant to bring black and white and all ethnicities together. It's a conversation that's increasingly happening among Christ Church all over America today. I've invited my friend Jarvis Williams onto the podcast to guide us in this conversation. Dr. Williams serves as Associate Professor of New Testament Interpretation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Jarvis's doctoral dissertation focused on the Apostle Paul's call for ethnic unity. He's about as knowledgeable and articulate as they come on this issue. It's my prayer that his words will both encourage and challenge you today. Well, I've got Jarvis on the line now, and I'm excited to talk to him. Thankful for you joining me today. Is it true that you're a Kentucky basketball fan? Is that true? That is true. <laughs> I love the Wildcats, and partly because I was born in Kentucky, and that's all we have in the part where I'm from is uh, Kentucky basketball as far as recreation goes. But um, but another part is I, I, legit, I, I genuinely love the, the program and, and appreciate some of their accomplishments with respect to uh, – national championships it's hard to disrespect i guess well that's obviously not going to be my <laughs> my main subject matter today but yeah the gospel can't even bridge that gap someone who loves kentucky <laughs> basketball well i want to mainly focus our time on the topic of race um, what does the bible say about diversity and racial reconciliation and how would you say it's tied to the gospel Yes, I, I think when we're having the conversation about race, first of all, it's, it's helpful to to distinguish between the category of race as it was constructed or as it existed in the biblical world and the category as it has been constructed and as it exists today in the modern world. For example, in the biblical world, race was not connected to a biological or scientific uh, reality, but rather race was constructed based on ideas and geography and and uh, theology and politics. He also had different different cases in the ancient world where certain groups did construct race based on physical features, but you didn't have a, an argument that was offered in the biblical world using science as you had in our context. Mm-hmm. Whereas in our context, when people talk about race, they usually connect that to uh, arguments that that I, I like to say arguments that were offered by by racists to highlight biological inferiorities of certain groups and mm-hmm. biological superiorities of other groups. Mm-hmm. So I think it's helpful when we start talking about what the Bible says about racial reconciliation. It's helpful to make the distinction between those two constructs of race because quite often I think we launch into what the Bible says about racial reconciliation without really knowing what we're talking about when we're talking about race. Mm-hmm. So then when we're talking about the gospel as a solution to racial division, I think the gospel actually speaks into both of those constructs. So I don't think Paul, for example, when he wrote Ephesians, was talking about the black-white divide. Ephesians chapter 2 fundamentally, but what he says speaks into that because he's talking about the fact that Jews and Gentiles are firstly separated from God, and then secondly, they are separated from each other, but Jesus Christ died to reconcile Jews and Gentiles to God and Jews and Gentiles to each other and the one new man. So in my view, whether you're black or white or red or yellow or uh, Latino or American or, or whatever your citizenship might be, Unless you are Jewish, you are a Gentile. So then the Bible directly, in my view, speaks to the Jew-Gentile division that exists fundamentally, yes, because of sin, 
And then secondly, that exists because of the law of Moses. So then uh, the gospel, I think, speaks to the fact that God has a cosmological work that he is uh, accomplishing through Christ in order to reconcile the entire cosmos to himself mm-hmm. and to each other. And that begins, I think, in Genesis 3.15 with God promising to crush the seed of the serpent by means of the seed of the woman. That continues in Genesis chapter 12 with God promising Abraham he's going to bless him with a land, with descendants, and through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that continue, continues with David in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 14, that he's going to give him a descendant that would come and reign over a kingdom forever. And then we find the ultimate fulfillment of that promise in the birth of Jesus Christ, who is the seed of Abraham, who is also the seed of David. And then when you get texts like Ephesians and Galatians as well, you see that Jesus Christ is, in fact, uh, by his cross and resurrection, bringing about this cosmological renewal that God promised way back in Genesis 3.15. And that cosmological renewal includes vertical reconciliation between God and sinners by faith in Christ, but also horizontal reconciliation between uh, fellow sinners uh, in Christ. And then there's also an ultimate uh, regeneration that takes place at the end of history when God will restore the entire cosmos and fill that cosmos with Jews and Gentiles, some from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, have been redeemed with the blood of Christ. So, so, so in my view, I mean, you start when you're talking about racial reconciliation, I think you start with the biblical narrative in the Old Testament, and then you trace that through and, and see how everything God has promised to, to do in Abraham, through Abraham, and for the world has been accomplished in Jesus. And then we all, of course, we must contextualize that in our modern day and figure out how we work that out in context of injustice or uh, or the the various things you see happening in our culture today. Great, that's good. And you kind of took my second question, but that's fine. You know, I've I think Andy Buile has been helpful in in helping us ask the question: Is race even the best way to talk about it? Is ethnicity better? You know, and I think you covered that the first part of your your answer. Um, Amy and I were recently at the Acts 29 pastors retreat in California, and there were five godly black pastors that were on this panel, and they just shared about some of their their difficult experiences as black men in America. Would you just share for a little bit maybe some of your experiences just as a way to minister and challenge some of your white brothers and sisters? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So a bit of background about me, I, I grew up in a rural part of of Kentucky, of Eastern Kentucky, and um, I was one of few uh, minorities in the part of Eastern Kentucky where I grew up, and uh, I I grew up experiencing racism in a very real way in my in my in my school and my my athletic teams. Um, I mean, this part of the part of the culture of the of the South, uh, the part of the, of the South where I'm from was growing up. I mean, it was just like common speech just to, just to use the N-word, for, for white folks to use the N-word when talking to or even about black people. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was very much part of the culture. And then also dealt with uh, racism, even in the classroom at school, I had a professor who would use the N-word and didn't direct it toward me, but he would use it in a way that was very cavalier when speaking about certain things. And, um, and then there were other situations where I remember as a, as a, as an athlete, I frankly, I'm obviously biased here, but as an athlete, I, I, I think I was not given the same opportunities uh, because of my skin color as some other kids who were who were white, and and so so I experienced racism in that in that context in, in different ways. Uh, my experience with the police, however, was a bit differently though, because in a, in a small town, growing up, at least where I grew up. I, I was an athlete, and a lot of people knew me, and so the, uh, the police knew me. I played ball with their kids, um, and I never had a negative run-in with the police uh, as, a, as a black man in rural eastern Kentucky, but quite the contrary. I, I, my experience with the police was always positive. Um, they you know, really looked out for me. I think part of that was because I had I had athletic privilege. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I think when you are when if you are an athlete, I think if you are a black athlete, especially, there are certain there are certain uh, experiences of racism that your athleticism enables you to overcome. 
that you might not be able to overcome in society if you were not an athlete. I think at a greater scale, you see that in, in society with with uh, professional athletes who make millions of dollars, they are able to escape certain racial, uh, uh, racist experiences because of their mm-hmm. uh, their their high-powered status as athletes. And so I think as an athlete, I had some advantages that some other folks would not have had. But but I never experienced racism, as I said, from uh, from a police uh, experience. But I did experience it on a regular basis and just basic social interactions. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, some white Christians would say that they've never engaged in any kind of active racism, and so they would believe that there's really nothing they need to change about themselves or their lives. But and they might even be offended at the suggestion that they repent of privilege or bear some sort of responsibility? How would you address them? How would you challenge them on that? Yeah, I would say that when you think about racism, it's not simply, I mean, I just define racism with respect to uh, external act, uh, external actions or, or certain verbiage that is used. But race, that, that's one aspect of racism. Racism is not simply Using the N word or de jure segregation or legalized segregation or or discriminating against someone because of their race, but but racism can also be implicit biases. It can also be um, subconscious. It can be expressed through microaggressions. For example, assuming that someone is incompetent because of their race is, is an expression of racism. I think um, not thinking someone has the Capacity to, to to achieve certain things because of their uh, their race is an expression of racism. I think also racism is is also evidenced by means of uh, privileges that people had. And so so I think white folks who would say that they've never participated in racism, I, I would argue and say that they might not have overtly said or consciously done things that would be perceived as racist uh, in a general definition, but by virtue of living in a society that has always, in this country, prioritized whiteness, they are benefits of certain privileges that come to them precisely because of racism and racial discrimination. In fact, I would even say at some level, I benefit from those same privileges. For example, I, I teach at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, mm-hmm. which is a seminary that was founded in part because of slavery, and it, and it did not allow uh, black people to study there at a particular time in history. And so I, in fact, benefit from those privileges as well. But the point that I'm emphasizing here is, is, that, is that the benefits that come to people uh, because of a prioritizing the whiteness makes people complicit in the idea of racism, even if they haven't consciously done something to um, emphasize or support black inferiority, if that makes any sense at all. So, so let me just add to that, I didn't say this. So, so my experience as a black man, uh, as a black kid growing up, um, was, was one where in a little small town, I was able to have certain privileges because I was an athlete. And, but now as an adult who lives in a different context and who lives in a society where uh, the color of my skin makes me suspect in certain contexts, uh, the, the, the systemic nature of racism is very much is very much real. So that when I'm on campus at Southern Seminary teaching in a classroom, everybody knows I have a PhD. But when I step off of that campus and get into my vehicle and, and I'm, I'm driving down the highway or if I'm in a store or if I'm out at night, there's the only initial perception that people have of me is the color of my skin, and and then and then certain people can choose to react a certain way hmm. because of the color of my skin. And I would argue that one's reaction uh, of of fear because they see a person with darker skin is a is an expression of what I would say is an implicit form of racism that comes hmm. out in certain systemic, social, cultural uh, interactions that. Um, one might not be aware even exists until there's this encounter with someone from a darker uh, skin color or from a different race. Hopefully that makes sense. It does make a lot of sense for sure. Well, moving on from that, Black Lives Matter has obviously become something of a rallying cry, but it's also fairly controversial to some. 
what do you think of what do you, how do you feel when you hear that and how should we understand this phrase in relation to a god who's created all people with dignity and worth yeah that's a good question i think when we think about the black lives matter movement as christians i think we need to make a distinction between the movement black lives matter and the concept black lives matter uh, certainly it is right and good to say that all lives do in fact matter uh, but the but the point to be emphasized here with with the concept Black Lives Matter is that historically there has been a question as to whether Black Lives do matter. So because we live in a country where the the Black body has been historically uh, dehumanized, there's always been this lingering question either explicitly or implicitly, do Black Lives Matter? And for a long time in this country, they did not. I don't think anybody who reads history carefully can deny that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then, if in fact there is a marginalized group of people who have been uh, treated as though their lives don't matter historically, then it is good and right to ask the question, does their lives or do their lives matter? Uh, just as it is good and right to ask question, if we were living in Nazi Germany, do Jewish lives matter? And we would be saying, yes, Jewish lives matter. We hope we would be saying that. At least we should be saying that. So I would argue that when we're talking about Black Lives Matter, we've got to make a distinction between the movement and the concept. The concept is is right. Black lives matter. All lives do matter, but there are certain things that happen in history that might require us to prioritize that certain lives matter too that have historically mm-hmm. been dehumanized. And I think black lives are some of those lives that one might ask have their lives matter. Now, the movement Black Lives Matter, as Christians, we need to critique that movement and, and, and biblically and theologically and recognize there are things about the movement. Uh, there are certain aspects of the movement that we would disagree with. And let me just say this for clarity's sake. I don't think the Black Lives Matter movement is monolithic. I, I think that there are different manifestations of it, and I think there are also people who have perhaps hijacked that movement to advance their own ideological agendas. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think it's helpful to realize that that movement is a is, it's a movement of movements, really. Mm-hmm. And and so you we can't we can't paint that movement with a broad brush. But what we can do is we can say that there are things about the movement that would that would be a that would have a commonality that would have commonalities with other aspects of it. And some of those things within the Black Lives Matter movement, Christian gospel would not be in favor of certain things, for example, regarding gender and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And and other aspects of the movement, the way uh certain people who have who have become offshoots of that movement, who have identified with that movement, the, their tactics as far as how they go about protesting. Protesting uh, safe protests and nonviolent protests are good, but it's not good to be to promote anarchy and those sorts of things. And and there are certain people who have tried to identify with that movement that have not uh, promoted the kinds of things that other people in the movement would promote. So it's helpful to understand that. But then I would also say, finally, about the Black Lives Matter movement, as a Christian, we should be able, as Christians, to look at movements that are non-Christian and appreciate the good of those movements that do not contradict the gospel. So so for me, I'm careful to identify with any movement uh, because you can't control the message of that movement other than the Christian movement, of course. But I can look at the Black Lives Matter movement and I can say there are things about that movement and about the movements within that movement that I disagree with, but there are also some things that they are emphasizing that would would actually correlate with the Christian gospel and would uh, would help, um, would be something that the Christian gospel would also affirm, such as the importance of all of, of human life and dignity of human life. And I think, again, their emphasis on Black Lives Matter does not de-emphasize the fact that all human lives matter. So that's, that's how I would frame it. Um, I want to critique and analyze the movement and I want to recognize that the movement is complicated, and it's it's not a Christian movement. I think it's even right to say it's not the new civil rights movement, which is 
another conversation that's happening. I think the civil rights movement was was a not only a a church based movement, but it was a church based movement. Uh, but I think it's also right to say that that it is good and right at this particular time in history for us to say black lives do matter along with other lives matter, but black lives matter too. Mm-hmm. That's really well put. Um, I take it that you caught that lecture to the Gospel Coalition by Micah Edmondson. Did you listen to that? Yes. Yeah, that yes, was so good. And the thing that really jarred me from listening to that was just the the sad irony that, of course, the response that we've heard over and over is all lives matter when he argues in that so well that that's really what we're trying to say when we say black lives matter. We're trying to say all lives matter. That just that got to me when I listened to yeah. that. Well, moving on yeah, from there, yeah. as we think about racism being systemic or individual, can you just talk about that and give us some guidance, um, the approach to trying to reckon with both of those things? Yeah. So when I think of of racism being individual, I think at, at an individual level, personal level, that there are individual acts of racism that are that are undeniable. That happen uh, every day. Some overt, but some not as overt. The, the undeniable overt example would be a uh, a white kid in Charleston, South Carolina, for example, going to a black church and killing uh, nine people because they're black. That would be an overt example that's undeniable of racism. This this white, this very overt white supremacist. Um, ideology that drives this young man to go take the lives of, of nine black people. I think other other examples of individual racism would be uh, the way one would interact or not interact with someone from a different race. One uh, choosing not to hire someone because of, of, race, uh, of racism. One choosing uh, to speak to or about certain groups of people because of their racial identity. I think those would be examples of individual racism. Uh, but then systemic racism is a bit more more complicated. It it is it, it can show itself up in in ways that aren't as overt uh, with respect to individuals doing or saying something that would clearly be identified as as racism. So so for example so an example of, of systemic racism would be when, when you have a, a system uh, legally that disproportionately seems to uh, give certain groups of people, particularly blacks and Hispanics, a, a greater uh, penalty for certain crimes committed that are comparable to crimes committed by those from the majority group. Uh, there, there seems to be ways in which the legal system, and I confess I am not a legal scholar, so I'm depending on people who know more about these things than I, there seems to be a way in which the legal system seems to often um, prioritize their uh, criminal, the criminalization of poor minorities uh, as opposed to justice being blind, which it seems not to be. And and so so systemic racism can show itself up in in those ways. It can show itself up in in the lending of money or not lending of money to certain groups of people for for homes uh, or mortgages. It can it can show itself up in the way uh, human resource departments choose to promote jobs or make hires. It can it can show itself up that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, when when the when the applicant pool seems not to be a pool where uh, you're inviting people in from all sorts of different ethnic demographics to consider them for jobs because of of the of the structures that are in place that uh, prioritize whiteness as opposed to uh, to non-whiteness. Uh, I, I think systemic racism can show itself up also in the context of the church where uh, you have these uh, these curriculum structures, these images, these these other areas of church life that seem to prioritize one group, ethnic group, over over other ethnic groups, and where uh, you have um, 
just sort of the assumption that uh, that whiteness is the norm and non-whiteness is abnormal or or, an, or ethnic, as opposed to all groups of people being ethnic. So I think systemic racism is a bit more complicated because you can't always put your finger on it in, in overt ways, mm-hmm. uh, but it but it is in the very fabric of of the of the the structure of the United States, and it's also in the very fabric of the evangelical movement. I mean, you cannot separate, in my view, evangelical Christianity in this country from from racism, from institutionalized racism. And, and and you look at our institutions, look at our Southern Baptist institutions, they are all very white in their makeup. Now, that's for many reasons, but one reason mm-hmm. I would argue is because of history. Mm-hmm of the system of racism that prioritized whiteness. Mm-hmm. Well, many have said, we've heard this many times, that Sunday morning's the most segregated time of the week. Why do you think that's the case? What can be done about that? And what would you say to someone that says that homogenous churches have a place? Yeah, good, good, three good questions. But number one, I think, There uh, are numerous reasons why Sunday morning would be uh, one of the most segregated times in America. One reason is because of the way in which Christianity came into this country. I mean, uh, when you you go back and think of issues related to colonization and slavery, things of that nature, I mean, again, you have a dehumanization of, 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 of the black body, for example, and you have slaves at particular points in history who um, are not treated as though they are equal, and they therefore are are limited in their interaction with 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 white folks. And eventually, of course, we get uh, emancipation, but we get also Reconstruction, and we get segregation. Mm-hmm. And in segregation, I mean, we have uh, the laws in place that say whites and blacks uh, say they can't be together. And so, uh, historically speaking, the, the black church, just to use that phrase, came into existence as into existence as a place where black people could worship and had dignity uh, one day out of the week in the context of growth segregation without experiencing any pressure from uh, the white majority, which was the agent of their dehumanization, unless, of course, the white majority interfered into their sacred black space, which happened, of course, bombings in Alabama and other places. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the segregation that existed in the churches came out of a particular historical context that was, I think, rooted in slavery, rooted in segregation. And so then, once segregation is over, I mean, you have uh, things happening like, like white, uh, white flight from certain communities and then black flight as well in certain communities. But you still have these these, these places like the church, which is sacred space, unwilling to be, to, to erase those those stains of racism that created uh, the very divisions between white church and the black churches in our country. So that's one reason why historically uh, black folks uh, at a point in history couldn't worship the white folks. It was against the law. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the second thing I think why we have so many segregated congregations is is because not enough people are willing to make the necessary ethnic negotiations for a multi-ethnic church experience. The fact of the matter is, it's hard enough it's hard enough getting together with all white folks or all black folks or all mm-hmm. Hispanic folks because within mm-hmm. those races you have people who have problems with each other. Mm-hmm. And you have differences even in the same race. I mean, uh, as you know, I mean, white people aren't monolithic. Black people aren't monolithic. Uh, Asian people aren't monolithic. Everybody's different. There's, there's differentiation even within races. And and so if that's difficult, how much more difficult it is when you get people from different ethnic groups together who are then required or who are then encouraged to sacrifice make certain ethnic negotiations for the sake of the multi ethnic gospel. That's just too hard for people. Mm-hmm. And then I think I think thirdly, and, and and this is perhaps most fundamentally it is most fundamentally, thirdly I think sin is is the reason fundamentally why multi ethnic church is is hard and segregation is is easier. 
is because sin has, has fundamentally shattered our relationship with God, and it's uh, secondarily shattered our relationship with each other. So then we don't naturally want to be in community with people, and we don't naturally want to be in community with people who are unlike we are. Mm-hmm. It's much easier for us to live in isolation. It's much easier for us when we do get in community with people to associate with those people that share our ethnic posture, our economic posture, our age demographic, or so on and so forth. Second question you asked was that uh, is there a place for a homogenous church or was that the third one? Second or third? I don't think it matters right now. That's all really good stuff. So the the homogenous question is there a place for homogenous churches? Mm-hmm. That's a very good question, and and I would say that I think it's very difficult for certain churches based on demographics to be diverse in the way I'm describing it, multi-ethnic diversity. So, so, for example, I grew up in Eastern Kentucky, a very racist part of Eastern Kentucky, and in my little town, there were not a lot of uh, minorities there. Now, in a joining town, there were more minorities there. But in my little town, there were no minorities, not, not a lot of minorities. And so I became the first person of color when I, when I became a Christian to join the church that I joined, and my uncle became the second. We, wow. I was converted in, 90, in 96. He was converted in 97. And we became the first, we are the only two people of color in that church's history, the Southern Baptist Church, to join that congregation. And, wow. and brother, of course, there were issues that, that came up, but that congregation taught me a lot about racial reconciliation. They loved me, they licensed me in the ministry, ordained mm-hmm. me, supported me through mm-hmm. seminary, gave me teaching opportunities, mm-hmm. preaching opportunities. But that church will never be a multi-ethnic church, just will not be, just because of pure demographics. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to say that first of all, not all churches can be multi-ethnic, but but every every church should have some kind of otherness represented in the body, uh, unless they're just living in a context where everybody has the same job, everybody's the same age, which is probably not likely. No. And and so so I would say homogeneity uh, is. Diversity is is not going to look the same way in every context, but it should always be a goal toward which the church should work, namely to reach out to all kinds of people in that community, even if they share the same homogenous ethnic posture. Mm. So, so pure homogeneity, I don't think, is helpful at all. I, I think if you are living in an all-white community, and everybody is affluent, uh, there are still certain things about that community that should not be homogenous. Uh, not everybody would have, likely have the same job, and everybody would likely have the same uh, kinds of family experiences. Maybe there would be some disabled kids in that community. So the church should try to reach out to people in the community that don't fit the majority group's identity. Uh, so I would say homogeneity should not should, should not make us that shouldn't be the goal is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Um, however, just to be careful though, I think on the other hand, you can have a multi-ethnic church that is very much homogenous. Uh, so we, so even those who are part of multi-ethnic churches need to be careful because if you have uh, middle-class black PhDs, middle-class white PhDs, middle-class yeah. Latino uh, PhDs, different ethnic groups, but very much homogenous in their economic mm-hmm. posture, see, and in their social status. So, so I would argue that churches should be intentionally trying to reach out to all kinds of people in their communities and beyond so that they can constantly work, uh, work toward the one new man that Christ um, created in the cross and resurrection and not settle for homogeneity, not be comfortable with it. God has made me, I've been a Christian now for 20 years, and I'm very uncomfortable with homogeneity. It's been a long process where I deeply in my soul, I feel disturbed because if I'm in a context where a lot of people are like I am. That makes me very sad, and that's a good thing. 
And so we should try to 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 work toward multi-ethnicity or diversity in ways that are gospel honoring. Second question you asked, I can't remember exactly what it was. Could you repeat that one? I think I think you covered it all actually. And that okay. was that was okay. really okay. so so well put for sure. Well, if you haven't heard, the last couple of years have been pretty rough in the state of Missouri. You know, we had Ferguson, yep. then we then we had the protest here at Mizzou, which is my community. What would you say to the church here in my state, in my town? What's our responsibility? What should we do? Yeah, that's a good question. Let me say, first of all, it's always it's, it's easy in one sense for someone on the outside looking in to say, here's what you need to do because I'm not there on the ground. Uh, I'm, I'm sitting uh, at a distance from that situation. So, so anything I say will be about theory. And then, and, but on the other hand, I think a general exhortation would be that when, when, when perceived or actual, perceived or actual racial injustices emerge in our communities, the church's posture should not be to dismiss those perceived or actual injustices. Amen. So yeah, absolutely. When things happen, when when questionable shootings occur, we, we absolutely need to let the facts come out and not rush to judgment. That's true. But on the other hand, we need to listen carefully to the narratives of people who are legitimately suffering from systemic injustices in our communities, even if a particular perceived injustice might not be proven to be an actual case of injustice. In other words, just because there are examples where what is perceived to be unjust ends up being just, that doesn't counter the reality that there are marginalized groups of people mm-hmm. who suffer systemic injustice every single day, even if, in fact, the one that's been given the, the, the media ends up not fitting the template for, for actual systemic injustice. So I think the church needs to hear, in other words, the narratives of people and not dismiss those narratives because there has been proven to be a case of what was perceived as injustice has been proven to be not injustice. That's one thing I think the church can do. Secondly, I think, and related to this, is the church needs to to seek to uh, get into the skin of those marginalized. I mean, one of the things that I've become convicted about uh, throughout all this is 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 making is, is is the fact that too often I have not actually tried to. To, to get into the skin of those who are actually in marginalized positions. So, just give you an example. So, I'm a middle class uh, black man uh, with a PhD, and I teach at a seminary. And my social posture allows me to escape certain kinds of injustice, just because of what I do for a living, just because of where I, where I live. There are certain things that I don't experience that other marginalized groups might experience. And so it would be easy for me then to be in denial and to act as though there's no systemic injustice just because I don't feel that to the same degree that somebody else does, who is a marginalized group, but whose social posture does not allow him or her to maneuver in society in such a way where he or she can escape certain injustices. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. That's good. So one of the things that I need to do and that Christians need to do in general is to make sure we are we are trying to do life with people who don't share our social posture so that we can hear their narrative about how they experience these these kinds of systemic injustices that many people might not experience. Because one of the problems I think is is that I think churches often think that just because What's described, well, just because the, the narratives of the marginalized aren't the narratives of those who are non-marginalized, 
those those groups of people who are not marginalized begin to think the counter narrative is false because it's not normal. It's not their experience. Hmm. But marginalization is normal for the marginalized. So That's therefore, right. we, if we don't know any marginalized people, it's going to be very difficult for us to sympathize with them or to empathize with them when social injustice emerges against that marginalized group or those groups of people. Uh, so that's the second thing I, I would say. And then I think also thirdly, I mean, churches need to need to be committed to understanding the whole gospel. I'll be honest with you, Kevin. I am sick and tired of these very narrow, uh, small definitions of the gospel that only want to speak to individual sins being forgiven. I'd be the first person to say, that Jesus died to forgive me of my sins. Mm-hmm. But Jesus did some Jesus's death was also to accomplish a cosmological Amen. reality. Yeah. And so the gospel speaks not only to my individual right standing before God, it also speaks to the cosmological renewal for which Jesus died and the, and the invasion of God's kingdom on earth now that Christians ought to be pushing forward through how we proclaim and how we live in community with each other. And and so one thing Christian churches need to do is we've got to stop minimizing the gospel to just this individual experience. Hmm. And we need to start emphasizing from Genesis to Revelation the whole gospel plan of God in Jesus to bring about this holistic reconciliation. And I'm afraid that many evangelical churches who emphasize this very narrow gospel are creating the very environment for racism to flourish in their congregations. Because every time you see social injustice emerge, and then when you hear Christians uh, say that we need to be advocates for those who are marginalized, one of the first things I hear evangelicals say is, some evangelicals say is, is that that's a social issue, it's not a gospel issue. Mm-hmm. Because the two are, are bifurcated from one another. And I just want to say that in the New Testament mindset, God's action always included individuals and society. It hasn't been simply Jesus saving us and taking us up to heaven right away. He's leaving us here to bring about action on earth. And Christians need to understand what that means in the real world. And I would also say another another thing I would say, this would be the final point. There's so many things I could say, but one final thing is is that, that it is so helpful I think for, for churches in contexts like Ferguson or really any, any urban context where these things could happen. Because I think, I think the things that happened in Ferguson could happen in Louisville. They can happen anywhere in any urban context. Uh, not just urban, but, but we're talking specifically about the urban context where there is a potential for certain marginalized communities to, 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 to experience a, a day-to-day uh, encounter with police that that they perceive in many cases are, in fact, unjust encounters. Again, let me just say, absolutely, vast majority of police from good police are are are, are good uh, doers of the responsibility that they have. But I think when you're in an urban context, and the larger the urban context, the more likely you are to have certain people in those positions who could be not using their authority in ways that would be, in fact, promoting the good of all people. So I think one thing churches need to do is, is when these injustices emerge and when and when you have uh, so much vitriol that's expressed, we need to make sure that we are always speaking gospel into these situations and that we don't take ethnic sides. We don't, and this is what I mean, we don't say all black people are just bad or all cops are bad or all cops are good, but we actually speak gospel truth into these situations and then we take the posture of the student and we we, we go to these marginalized communities, we listen to these groups, uh, whether it be police who are marginalized or, or ethnic groups who are marginalized. And we, we take the posture of, 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 of exegeting our culture and then trying to offer gospel help where we can offer gospel help. And that might mean our congregations, uh, trying to, to do things like, you know, bringing uh, the community and 
and the police together for a dialogue in the context of a gospel conversation. It might mean uh, us providing opportunities in our churches when protests break out. It might mean that the church can provide a safe space for people to come and pray as opposed to protesting that could end up in a in a violent situation, coming and praying for the community and, and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. I think the worst thing churches could do is just put our heads in the sand and say, just preach the gospel. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's how uh, just uh, the, the, the statement, just preach the gospel is code for we don't care about human suffering. Mm-hmm. Wow. And we want to care about these things and we want to preach the gospel, but the gospel is not only something we preach, although it is, it's something that we personify in how we, in how we live. And, and, and then also, final word here, but we, we want to also, as Christians, we want to think very carefully before we speak about these things. I think worse than saying nothing about race is saying the wrong things when these, when these issues pop up in our culture. And so I, I think one of the things that Christians need to do is read and learn from people who are coming from different postures. So I'm shocked by the degree to which uh, many of my students that I teach at Southern, they never read minority authors. Most of the books they read are written by white men. And praise God for books written by white men. I mean, I've been influenced in my theological education mainly by white men. But, but, but black and brown authors and female authors have a lot to contribute, not just to race, but also to other areas. But on the race issue as well, it's helpful for, I think, Christians and particularly white Christians to read, to read books written by, uh, authors with whom they might disagree politically and ideologically, but understand a different narrative. Understand, um, why minorities like Latinos or, or, or African-Americans or, or African-American women or Asians might think about race in a different way from, from a white person who is the majority. I think one, one way we, we are able to get to the skin of people and to have something that we can offer as Christians is to actually read their narrative, hear their narrative, understand their narrative, and be challenged to realize that our narrative is not normal for the other, whoever that other might be. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It does. So any any books that you would throw out as recommendations to just help? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, as an academic, most of the stuff that I read on race is, is academic books. But I think one good book that is written by a couple of white evangelicals, actually, they're both sociologists, um, Michael Emerson, the white sociologist, I think he teaches at uh, Rice University. He wrote a book called Divided by Faith, and he published that book with Oxford University Press. Mm-hmm. And it's a bit dated now. It was published, I think, in 2001. But he's also an evangelical. But what he does is he brings his sociological skills to bear in that book. And he and his colleague, they surveyed and did all sorts of statistical analyses and and talk with white evangelicals and, and minority evangelicals about race and and showed you that there's a great division between blacks and whites on the issue of race. It's a very very helpful book. Mm-hmm. Um, some other books that are that are very helpful to read. A book by an African American uh, social psychologist named Beverly Daniel Tatum. Mm-hmm. It's called Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very helpful book which uh, outlines um, how minority groups, uh, particularly black children, and how minority groups are, are communal and why they're very communal. Another book that I think is, is helpful, would be helpful to read uh, on issues like this would be a um, book written by, uh, this is a, a book written regarding uh, mass incarceration, Michelle Alexander. Michelle Alexander wrote a book called The New Jim Crow. Uh, on mass incarceration. Uh, Michelle Alexander, I think she's a Stanford law professor. Mm-hmm. And, and she, uh, she basically just details, uh, from her perspective how, how the prison system is, uh, is grossly overpopulated with, uh, minorities, particularly blacks and Latinos. 
and all sorts of other other books. Uh, again, let me just give another another uh, top comment here related to this. So, as an academic, most of what I read is is books that uh, I might disagree with ideologically because I want to learn from a different posture mm-hmm. uh, things about race that I might not think uh, learn if I'm reading people with whom I already agree. So there's another book that's very helpful that I'm requiring for a class that I'm teaching at Southern in the fall on race and theology. It's a book called, authored by, or edited by uh, uh, a couple of scholars. One is Latino, his name is Richard Delgado, and the book is called An Introduction to Critical Race Theory. Mm-hmm. And one of my research interests is critical race theory. I'm not a critical race theorist, but I like to use the theory where it's helpful or understanding things about race as it applies to New Testament studies. Mm-hmm. But but uh, the book is a book that uh, the, the, ide- the ideological framework of the book is postmodern, and there are things about it that I disagree with. But uh, the book is a, is a gem because it introduces you to vocabulary that is essential for understanding race, and it talks about things like microaggression, intersectionality, these sorts of things that are pretty much commonplace language that you find and any high-level discussions about race and, and systemic racism and privilege. And, and one of the things that the book points out is, is how racism is not abnormal. It's very much normal in the United States and how uh, whiteness has always been prioritized in this country. And, again, you're not going to agree with everything in the book, but the book will shine a great ray of light onto the conversation of race and what people are actually talking about uh, when you hear them talking about privilege and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And of course, some of, I mean, there's many other books that, that I can refer you to, but, but some of the classics as well will be worth reading. Books written by Booker T. Washington, uh, Up From Slavery, books by W.B. Du Bois, uh, The Souls of Black Folks, uh, books by uh, Ida B. Wells, who was a uh, an anti, she's a black woman who lived in the early 1900s. And she was a, a journalist who was a, who was a leading African American woman against lynching. She had this, 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 this very important anti lynching campaign. And you can get her whole works, uh, in, in one volume with Penguin's classics. And it's basically her, her, her notations, her documents, her diaries about, about, uh, her work to fight against, against lynching. Mm-hmm. And the books go on and on and on and on. And a good place to, a good, a good resource to go to, your listeners can go to, is a syllabus that's now made public called the, the hashtag Charleston syllabus. Hashtag Charleston syllabus. You can okay. Google that and you go online and that syllabus has been a gem. It's been put together by several scholars, predominantly black scholars. One young lady is a Princeton uh, PhD who teaches history, and they basically give you books on slavery, books on racism. They give you all sorts of op-eds. I mean, there's every, everything you can ever need to get your hands around race and racism in this country. I think that syllabus provides for you. It's about, a, I think, a 20-page syllabus of bibliography. That's so helpful. Well, can I squeeze in one more question? We're way over time. Absolutely. Can you, yeah. Great. Well, can you talk a little bit about interracial or interethnic marriage? I got to preside over my first this year, and it was a, a great privilege. I know that Anna is Hispanic, right? So could you talk about that yep, and right. just how it showcases the gospel? Maybe how you Absolutely. would encourage someone um, considering it or, or maybe answer someone who might be criticizing it? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So yeah, let me give you another bit of background here. So my ethnic background is very diverse. So my my father was was black. My mother was or is a combination of black, Native American, and her mother was uh, biracial, white, and um, and black. So I have a very multi-ethnic heritage. My my wife is uh, Latino. She's from Costa Rica, a Latina. She's from Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. Her mother was from Nicaragua. And so her mother and her father were an intercultural marriage, even though they, even though the father was from Costa Rica, the mother was from Nicaragua, both like uh, both Hispanic, but those are still very different cultures. And so our marriage is very much a multi-ethnic, multicultural marriage, and we have a multi-racial, multi-ethnic, multi-ethnic son. I would say to to people regarding multi-ethnic relationships that uh, that in Christ Jesus, 
God creates Jews and Gentiles into one new humanity, mm-hmm. and he transforms us. And so the Bible makes it, in my view, very clear that Christians are free to marry in the Lord. Uh, marriage is between a man and a woman, and a Christian man and a Christian woman can marry uh, each other regardless of their of their race. And this is a beautiful display of the gospel because it personifies in a very real way this new humanity for whom Jesus Christ died. He died for his church, and his church is some from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. And he died to put these people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation into a body, into a community with each other. And that body is beautiful. And marriage, interestingly enough, in Ephesians 5, is uh, described with this uh, language of, uh, or excuse me, the church, rather, is described as, with, as an analogy of being a marriage. And so the the one new man that Paul talks about in Ephesians 2 and 3 is, is now described in terms of this marriage and this church being like a bride and a husband uh, in Ephesians chapter chapter 5. So this is a very beautiful thing that God honors. And and we also need to remember, I think it's helpful to remember as Christians, that race, as we define it in, in the American experience, is a social construct. There is no black gene or white gene. There are there are human genes, and there are other genes that can tell certain things about people. But there's no gene that I have that makes me black. Black is something that, that I have been racialized as because of a particular um, designation given to me because I have a heritage that's traced back to Africa. And, and, and when we think about race, race is, is something that was created before social currency wasn't it was more ideological than biological and that's important to realize so, so then when we're talking about uh race there's a human race that we are all part of and then these other racial categories like black and white they're social constructs and so then it is very much okay for human beings uh, to marry human beings and and the only reason why people think that that's not appropriate is because of sin, firstly, and secondly, because of the racist social construct that we've, had, we've subconsciously inherited. Mm-hmm. I would say to those people who are struggling with interracial marriage or who are, who are struggling because they, they are being told that this is inappropriate, I would say that they should consider the gospel because there's nothing in the gospel that forbids uh, people in the Lord, a man and a woman in the Lord, for marrying each other. There's there, if if a, if a male and a female love Jesus, and those two Christians they love Jesus, and regardless of what their ethnic heritage might be, regardless of what their economic heritage might be, they are free in Christ to marry each other for the glory of God, and that's a beautiful display of the gospel. And so they then must. Uh, those who are in interracial marriages and those who are uh, in interracial relationships thinking about interracial marriage must must view this as a spiritual discipline. They must fight against the devil and his lies. They must fight against the devil and his lies when the devil seeks to discourage them because of what society says their interracial marriage um, would represent, and and so the gospel and the love of the gospel conquers all of the mm-hmm. lies that the devil and his minions would want to tell those who are involved in interracial marriages or thinking about interracial marriages. Mm-hmm. It is much more important to marry someone from a different race who loves Jesus than to marry someone from the same race who does not. Wow, that's so well put, and this has been so helpful. And I, I just want to thank you so much, Jarvis, for taking the time, and I just can't wait to get this out there for people to listen to. Well, thank you, brother. I appreciate you.
hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jarvis. I would encourage you to grab your favorite podcast app and subscribe to Chorus Deep and Wide and to tell your friends to do the same. You can also go to choruschurch.org forward slash podcast to catch up on back episodes. And of course, if you're ever in mid-Missouri, we would love to have you at one of our locations, either in Columbia or in Jefferson City. Until next time, grace and peace to you. Because the nose can't ring.